The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So for the last few weeks, we have been talking about the markers of discipleship through this teaching series that we're calling Deeper, How Do People Grow? Now, each of the subjects that we're talking about relate to the areas of our lives that need to be examined as disciples. And when we define a disciple as someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is teaching others to follow Jesus, it automatically means that we need to think about what this actually looks like to live out, what this actually looks like in our lives. And so we've been looking at the different categories of our lives or different segments of our lives and and how they relate to a whole life surrender to God. So in week one, we talked about God-glorifying stewardship. God-glorifying stewardship talks about or describes the degree to which we manage God's resources for God's purposes. And so when we think about being a disciple, we have to look at that area of our lives. In week two, we talked about authentic relationships marked by love. And that category of our life or that aspect of our lives is seeking to describe the degree to which we are genuinely connected to God and to others by love. In week three, we talked about gospel purity and mature doctrine. And that seeks to understand the degree to which we know Jesus and understand his gospel and live out of the reality of the kingdom that he rules. In week four, we talked about missional lifestyle. And that's the category that seeks to describe the degree to which we live as missionaries, joining on God's mission in everyday life. This is a lifestyle, a way that we live in the world in day-to-day life, on mission for God. And this week, week five, we're going to talk about pursuing emotional health. And this is the degree to which our thoughts, feelings, and emotions have a positive or a negative effect on living to the glory of God. Now this is an important aspect of our discipleship because it is probably one of the most ignored aspects of our discipleship. And additionally, it's deeply personal to me. You see, I was shaped personally by shame. That was, I think, something that, that formed me early on in life. This was the result of both sins against me and sins that I had done. And when I got saved in November of 1997, I was at my lowest point. I was a 19-year-old kid who was a meth addict, was in trouble with the law. I had uh, been arrested, was facing three felonies, was looking at the possibility of prison as a part of my future. And I went home, told my parents. uh, They drug me to church that night. And when I arrived that night in a sanctuary, I heard the gospel preached. You know, at that moment, I had nothing to offer society and had only brought sorrow to my family. That was the only thing that had been my experience, at least from my perspective. And when I heard the gospel that night, 
I experienced the grace of God in a radical way. I knew I had nothing that I was bringing to the table that was worth anything, nothing of value. And the grace of God entered in, and it forever changed my life. It absolutely, radically shifted reality for me. Now, after that moment, I attended Bible studies. I, I learned the discipline of not cussing, which was a new discipline for me. Um, I, I stopped using. I learned the insider lingo of the church that I attended. I went through a, a school of ministry. I got married. Eventually, I went to plant a church in Cave Junction. I prayed. I had devotions. I journaled. I worshiped publicly and privately. Memorized scripture. I evangelized. I fasted. I retreated. I did all the Christian stuff that you're supposed to do. But it would take years before God would expose my emotionally unhealthy state. It would take years for God to begin to work and help me to see the depths of who I really am. And I'm sure even at this moment right now as I stand here, I have not reached the bottom of those lessons yet. There is still a lot that God has to do in me to shape me into the image of his son, to make me more like Jesus from the heart. You see, I had no idea how my shame had pushed me towards overworking, towards other addiction behaviors like eating or endless scrolling, being on my phone, being on technology, or how people-pleasing tendencies that I possessed those things weren't just me being a servant, me being a good-hearted person trying to care for the needs of others. Actually, it was a lack of boundaries that were directly related to wounding that I had received early in life. I had no idea the harm that these things would cause me and the people closest to me, including my wife and my kids. I had no idea how much there was for God to uncover in me. It would take longer still to uncover how the abuse that I endured as a child would stunt my perspective on relationships or, on, or how not knowing who my bi biological father was would affect my sense of belonging in the world. It would take longer still for God to begin prying my, my desire for control from my fingertips, bringing me to a place where I could love others without an agenda. Instead of loving them for their potential, actually loving them for who they are no matter how they come. There was much for me to learn. And though we never arrive at a permanent state of always being emotionally healthy, it is a part of our lives that needs to be addressed in our discipleship. We need to be pursuing emotional health. And this is a lifelong process. Now, during our talk today, we're, there's no way for us to cover all of it. So we're going to lightly hit over things. Um, but we're going we're gonna to begin to build some framework for us to think about this. I love what Pete Scazzaro said in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He said this, It is impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally unhealthy. Let, let me say that again. This is something, you should write this down, maybe get a good tattoo, <laughs> right? 
It is impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally unhealthy. You see, who you are on the inside is what you bring to the table. The state of your heart is what you minister out of. And if the state of your heart is unhealthy, it affects the way in which you interact with the world around you. So if wounds hinder your ability to love, if toxic positivity keeps you from grieving, if anger causes you to hurt the relationships you have, you end up resisting all that God wants to do in and through you. You see, to be shaped in the image of Jesus means that we will inevitably need to be conformed to his image in our emotional life as well. It's going to touch the deepest places of our heart. He's going to expose our wounds and our belief systems and the substructures that undergird our life that cause us to act and to do and to be in the world. So what I'm hoping we will see this morning is that Jesus lived in pursuit of an emotionally healthy life. Despite his circumstances and his upbringing, Jesus was able to be honest with his feelings, present and undistracted to the people around him, resilient under pressure, honoring of the autonomy of others, all while exhibiting the fruits of, exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. And he was able to do this because he was confident in his identity of where he stood and who he was. This was an identity that he did not come up with on his own. It was given to him by the Father, and it was confirmed at his baptism. And as disciples, we are intended to live in the same pursuit of understanding our identity, where it places us in the world, and what it is that we live out of as the people of God. So let's dive into our passage for today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 13, looking at the baptism of Jesus, and think about together, we'll try and work out the implications of this passage for our lives as disciples. Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, well, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to, for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, that's John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Our outline is fairly simple this week. It comes in the form of four questions. Where, why, what, and when. So if you're taking notes, there's our outline for this week. Where, 
why, what, and when. So as we explore these questions, we'll get a better understanding of the impact of this moment on the consciousness of Jesus and how it set a course for his life. And, and then at the end, we're going to make some application for ourselves as those who are learning to live like Jesus in the world. So looking first of all at our first question, the where of Jesus' baptism, verse 13. Jesus is here at the Jordan River. This is the place where John is baptizing. This is the place where the Israelites were led into the promised land by Joshua after Moses died. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And under the leadership of Joshua, as Israel crosses the Jordan, God's people are now in God's place under God's rule. And that starts the nation, the kingdom of Israel. Joshua led the Israelites into God's promised kingdom. And Yeshua, or Joshua, is their leader and has been appointed by God to help, them lead, help lead them into this reality. So this is the historic place that Jesus is now coming to, this river that has this incredible significance of the beginning of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus has now come in obedience as the Messiah to lead a new nation into all that God has promised. Jesus comes to the same river to symbolize the start of the new kingdom of God. And Yeshua Jesus is the greater than Yeshua Joshua who is now leading the people of God into what he has always promised. And at this moment, he begins his public ministry journey at the same river that Joshua did. Like Joshua, Jesus begins from this moment to step foot into the ministry, into the, the conflict that will follow, uh, that God has prepared for him, and every place that he puts his feet is going to be territory taken for God's kingdom. Do you remember that promise from Joshua chapter 1? Every place the the sole of your foot touches. That same promise could be applied to what is about to happen through the life of Jesus. So the where of Jesus' baptism is important, but also the why in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14 it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But then Jesus argues with him and says, let it be so for now. For thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Now, isn't it weird that Jesus wants to get baptized? Jesus doesn't need to be converted. He's the Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity. And we learn from the preceding verses that John's baptism, from verse 11, is a baptism of repentance. That means that the people getting baptized were not living as God's people, they were not living as a part of God's kingdom. They, they had rejected God's rule and they needed to repent and come, come back to that place. And so John's baptism is this baptism of repentance of sort of coming back to the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. John is announcing the kingdom of God and saying that 
The Messiah has arrived. He's on his way. And so you need to straighten out your life. You need to fill in all the low places in the roads of your life. And, 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 and you need to make the path level and straight. You need to get things lined out here and prepare yourself because the king is coming. That was his message. People needed to get their lives straightened out before his arrival. But now Jesus is coming to get baptized. Is there something that Jesus needs to repent of? Why is Jesus getting baptized by the Baptist? Even John seems to struggle in this passage, doesn't he? There's like this argument that takes place. Wait, wait, wait. I, I should be getting baptized by you. Why are you here to get baptized by you? know, John is even resistant to this. Peter Ulrich captured this well in our discussion this week. He said, there is an obvious tension in the passage between what John thinks should happen and what Jesus thinks should happen. Tension. That's a great word to describe it. I love what the Faith Life Study Bible app says regarding this tension. It's a super helpful note. It says this, John's baptism for repentance was a means of identification with the kingdom of God. And although Jesus, the sinless son of God, had nothing for which to repent, he publicly identified with God's kingdom through his baptism. You see, Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness by surrendering his life and future to the plan of God to establish his kingdom. His baptism, then, is an act of surrendered obedience to the plan of God, and Jesus is taking his role in it. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus was praying when he was being baptized. There was conversation happening between the Son and the Father during his baptism. It's as though the movements of baptism become a representation or a sort of play-acting, living prophecy of all that Jesus will do to redeem his people. He came to die, to be buried, and then to be raised again from the dead. And Jesus in surrendering to this moment, is embracing it all. And so notice not only the where of Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River and the rich history that's there, the symbolism of what is taking place, and not only the why of Jesus' baptism, but also notice the what. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. What is going on that Jesus gets a personal visitation and the presence of the Holy Spirit in bodily form. Remember, in the incarnation, Jesus has taken on the humble form of a servant and is dependent upon the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in his humanity the same way we all are. Jesus is not cheating when he goes about doing ministry in the name of the Father, doing kingdom work. He's not leaning on his divinity to accomplish things here as a, as a human. Rather, he is living the full human life in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. He's showing us what it looks like to live surrendered to the Spirit. 
He does not cheat at the human experience by utilizing his divinity. Jesus is being empowered and in this moment is being commissioned for the work of public ministry on behalf of God's mission. God the Father and the Spirit show up then to call Jesus and commission him to this task. Now this type of commissioning work, this moment where God shows up, is actually a pattern that's repeated throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. When God commissions, he also empowers his chosen vessels for divine task. It starts out in the very first chapters of the book of, of, the book of Genesis in the, book, in the Bible. Adam in the garden is met by God personally and commissioned to the work of filling up the garden, maintaining it, multiplying and filling up the earth. Noah gets a personal visit from God in Genesis 6 when he's commissioned to build a boat. Abraham gets a personal visit by God and so do his son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob. Moses gets a personal visitation from God when he goes to set the people of Israel free. Joshua gets a personal visitation from the Lord. Eli as a young child, Gideon, Deborah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. You see the same pattern again and again and again throughout the scriptures that when God calls someone and commissions them to move forward, he meets them personally in a profound way to empower them. And this pattern actually continues in the New Testament after Jesus. Remember when Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room and he breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls upon 120 believers in an upper room. Or again when the Holy Spirit falls upon the Gentiles when the gospel comes to the Gentiles later on in the book of Acts. You see this same commissioning work happening again and again throughout the scriptures and Jesus here is being commissioned to a task then comes the when of Jesus's baptism in verse 17 and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased I want us to key in on the timing of this moment. Jesus is about 30 years old at this moment. He has lived 30 years in obscurity, simply living a blue-collar life as a laborer, as a carpenter. He's done no public ministry. And this means, then, that his pleasing of the Father does not come from any good or obedient work that Jesus has done. It's not from the success that he has in public ministry. It is not for all the holy things that he's done. Rather, his pleasing of the Father is based upon the fact that he is the Son. There's been no success in ministry. The Father loves the Son simply because he is the Son. Now, while that may seem obvious, the truth of that detail gives to Jesus everything he needs to face all that lies ahead in an emotionally healthy way. You see, this declaration from the Father forms Jesus' identity. And identity formation is how we make sense of who we are in the world. 
Jesus' identity was anchored to what his father had declared. You are the son whom I love. You're the one I am so pleased with. I absolutely love you. You're my son. That truth becomes this anchor point for Jesus throughout the whole of his ministry experience. What takes place here becomes the defining mark of Jesus' life and ministry. His core identity defined his habits, his behaviors, his labor, and his actions in the world. Jesus lived, surrendered to the Spirit, and committed to live out the mission that the Father had sent him on. And the entire story of Jesus swings on the hinge of this moment here. It is something that all four Gospels speak of and record for us. And in the very next chapter, we can see an example of direct application of this truth in the way that Jesus ends up in the temptation and how he handles that situation as he faces the temptation in the desert with Satan. So don't miss chapter 4 verse 1 notice that the very first work of the holy spirit is to lead jesus into the desert for a time of fasting and a time of testing it is during this time that jesus will encounter satan and when satan comes at him what does satan attack his identity if you really are the son of god that's the question It's during this time of testing and of attack from the enemy that Jesus' true nature is being revealed. What he truly believes about himself is rising to the surface. But I want you to notice something first. Who led him into that? What does the Bible say the person that led him into that moment? The Holy Spirit, you guys got it, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important because, you know, I think, I think often people think that the leading of the Spirit is all about the hidden voice in our hearts or uh, it, it's about us being directed by the intuitive voice of God in us. And that can and, and sometimes can be and sometimes is very much true. Often, though, the leading of the Spirit is really through life circumstance it's through situations that we are directed into by the will of God that is the sovereign God leads us into circumstances that reveal the true nature of our hearts and even the imperfections the idols that we set our hope in are brought to the surface the comfort seeking behaviors and addictions that we cling to are revealed under stress the attitudes of pride and entitlement are exposed and uh and and brought to the surface when we are confronted with something that is really beyond our control this too is the leading work of the holy spirit in our lives it is his work to refine us and this last week leslie our children's director reminded me of this passage in malachi chapter 3 that talks about god's work as a refining fire like a refiner smelting gold taking off the dross the impurities from the gold the heat of trials exposes the impurities in our lives so that god can begin to remove them 
When Jesus is led here to be tested by the devil, the first thing that Satan attacks is the same thing that he attacked in Eve in the Garden of Eden. He attacked Jesus' identity. And each temptation is a direct assault on what has taken place between the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. When Satan slithers in and says, if you really are the Son of God, he is attacking these core foundational truths. The first temptation, turn these stones into bread, Satan said. This is a temptation to get his needs met outside of God's provision. To get his needs met outside of God's provision. And we, we have similar temptations. That's at its root. Oftentimes what is happening when somebody is tempted towards pornography or theft or vegging out on media or abuse. We're trying to get a need met outside of God's provision. And that's what drives us into that temptation and that sin. The second temptation, throw yourself down off the pinnacle of the temple. The angels will bear you up. Doesn't scripture say that they have to catch you? This is a temptation to control or manipulate God to get the results that he desired. If you throw yourself off, the angels have to catch you. Then everybody will know. Everybody in the temple will see. They'll know that you really are the son of God. Satan's trying to get him to control God, to manipulate God, corner him in some way. We have similar temptations that we face, right? Oftentimes that can be what's at the root of our religious activities, our good works. Sometimes it's even overt in the form of bargaining or trying to cajole God, give him an ultimatum in some way, saying, God, I will if you, right? Trying to manipulate God control him the third temptation i'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship me now this is a temptation to not have to suffer the cross to get to the kingdom look everything that you want you want the kingdoms i know i know why you're here you want you want the kingdoms right you want the world you're laying claim to that i'll give it to you and you don't have to go to the cross all you got to do is just bow down to me right Avoid the suffering. We have similar goals in the temptations that we face, don't we? These are the goals often in divorce, in moral compromise, in addictions. You can have the pleasures of the kingdom without having to suffer. That's what we think. And though physically weak, Jesus has been fasting and drawing near to the Father during this time. He is spiritually strong and vibrant. And pulling from what the Father has already said about him, Jesus doesn't need to get his needs met outside of God's provision because his Father loves him. And he knows that. And he's relying upon that when he says... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He doesn't need to manipulate the Father because the Father already has a good plan and Jesus knows that he's a part of it. God will show the people who Jesus is in God's way at God's time. He doesn't need to manipulate it. 
And because of the love that the Father has for him, Jesus won't tempt him, wound him, or betray him. The love of the Father motivates the faithfulness and obedience of the Son. Any suffering that comes from loving the Father is embraced wholesale by Jesus. He doesn't count the cost. He's not sitting there calculating, like, how far will I go in suffering? It's like, all of me is in. All of me is all in, no matter what it costs. Can you see how this works, how living out of his identity shapes his actions and even his defense of himself in the world? The love of the Father is not just something that Jesus has to earn, it's something he already has. And because he has this love, it shapes his actions in everything that he will accomplish through the rest of the Gospels. He does not need to overwork to earn something from his father. Rather, he responds as a diligent steward who is loved and trusted. This means that he can rest at appropriate moments. He can withdraw from public ministry and be alone with the father. He can step aside. He's free to engage. He's free to back away. He's not earning anything from the Father. His life has meaning and purpose from being a son, not from doing activities. And this being loved produces the things that a well-loved son does as a loving response. Because he soaks in the love from the Father, he responds then in obedient love to the Father. It motivates his work. He doesn't need approval from man. Why? Because he's already accepted in the Beloved. Therefore, he's free to speak the truth in love regardless of the reaction of those around him. Because he is a son of the Father who is loved, he is free to express his emotions. He's free to talk about his feelings. Why? Because it doesn't diminish his value. It doesn't make him weak to talk about his vulnerableness, his hurt, or his angst. He can share it openly. Feelings like joy or sorrow are a reason, rather, to run to the embrace of his loving Father. When feelings come up, it's a reason for him to go, Father, I need you. I want to tell you what's in my heart. I want to tell you what's going on. Because he's a son of the Father and he's loved, he can love authentically and deeply without fear of rejection because he lives from acceptance and approval. He's not trying to get something from others. He can love freely without hoping that there's reciprocation. He loves others in response to how he has been loved, apart from what he's done. He can accept his limitations without fear that it makes him less. That means that his need for sleep, his need to eat, the fact that he only has 24 hours in a day, the fact that he's limited to space and time through the incarnation and he can only be in one place at one time doesn't diminish his worth or value. The fact that he's limited doesn't make him worth less. Why? Why does Jesus know this? Why can he accept those limitations? Because he's loved 
by the Father. He's a son. He's approved of. And he's embraced that. And it gives him the freedom to live within his limitations. He doesn't need to be more than what he is. And he does not need to avoid pain, suffering, grief, or loss because they are not indicators of God's displeasure. Rather, pain, suffering, grief, and loss are all servants of a loving father. They expose the broken places in the world and they cause the son to cry out to him to redeem them. In the words of C.S. Lewis, pain is God's megaphone to the world. And when Jesus encounters it, rather than trying to avoid it or run away from it, he's able to look it square in the face and then go to his loving Father and say, God, heal, redeem, work. He doesn't have to avoid suffering or grief or loss. So Jesus then models for us how to live in pursuit of emotional health. During his earthly ministry... Jesus felt the full range of human emotions from joy to sadness, compassion to anger, and distress to peace. Jesus set boundaries with other people to keep from being manipulated by them. And yet he was also undistracted and fully present to the people around him. He expressed empathy towards the suffering of others and embraced grief and sorrow rather than trying to avoid it. Jesus knew when to engage in ministry and crowds and busyness. He also knew when to withdraw and recharge his spiritual and emotional batteries. Jesus showed us how to live emotionally healthy lives. And to be a disciple who is growing in the likeness of Christ, we will need to pursue being emotionally healthy as well. The choices that Jesus made to engage or withdraw is him managing and pursuing emotional health. The choices he made about fasting and praying are him showing us how to pursue emotional health. The choices he made to have some people as his close friends and not others is him pursuing his own emotional health. It's him, him setting limits as to who he can entrust himself to, the treasured places of his heart. All of this is an example of pursuing emotional health. And Jesus here makes those choices. The choices he made about resting and working hard is him pursuing emotional health. The choices he made to be honest about the state of his heart is Jesus pursuing his emotional health. You remember when he was with his disciples in the upper, upper room? He says, oh, I've longed to eat this meal with you. Remember when he was there at the Garden of Gethsemane, honestly before the Lord? He says, my soul is in great distress. Honest with his friends, pray, pray for me right now. I am in great distress, he said. Think about the vulnerability of the Son of God talking about his stress. It's incredible. How could he live this way? Because he saw his life, meaning, and purpose as being enfolded into the larger story of God's redemptive work. He found context for everything that he faced 
in the story of God. See, here's the thing. Most of us live in a first-person perspective of life. And because of this, we, we're, we're sort of living like in a, in a movie set, right? And we're, our eyes are like the camera's perspective. And everything is first-person. And as a result of that, what happens is we are seeing ourselves in, in most of the time in one of two ways. Either I am the victim, life is happening to me, these things that are happening, they're antagonists to who I am and what I really desire, or I see myself as the hero. I'm killing it. I'm amazing. Everybody loves me. My life is so great. But we're seeing from this very self-centered, first-person perspective. And in reality... In the way things really are, we are not center stage. This whole experiment in creation and reality is not our story. It's God's story. And we are a part of his story. Our lives are being woven into the millions of ways that God is working redemption in the world. His unconditional love and his pursuit of us magnifies his grace. It extols his character. It causes us to see who he really is. He is the star of the show. And when we live from that understanding, we're able to walk in in an emotionally healthy way despite the circumstances in life. We're able to imitate Jesus in his approach to work, to food, to relationships, to trials, to conflict, and to honesty about our feelings. Let me draw a picture that I think is actually somewhat helpful. You see, my story is being woven into the meta-narrative of God's story, like the story of Joseph in the Bible. God even uses what the enemy or others intend for evil for good. He is a redemptive God and he is redeeming our story. He's taking our story, the story of our lives, and weaving it into his story, the story of redemption of all things. So most of us experience life from this first person place. And so yet we have this, this perspective, right? I'm born... And then there's a sort of an uptick. My childhood is, is good or it's bad. Maybe it's a downtick, whatever your graph is, right? I, I had a good childhood experience. And then came my teenage years. And it's like, pff, we plummet through the, through the baseline. You know, like, man, teenage years were hard. And then early adulthood, I got married and there was newness. And I'm discovering who I am. And, you know, all of that is great. And then comes midlife crisis, right? And that comes from out of nowhere. Didn't expect that. Wow, I'm almost dead. This is going to be hard right so boom we crash down through the other side slowly we make our way out of that hole and we begin moving towards retirement and we go oh man retirement's a great time it's a time for me to be selfish and live the way that I want and I don't have to do ministry and there's no obligations and I can do anything right and then we die (laughs) and that's what we think life is right but that's not actually reality Reality is, this experience is a blip. It's a micro dot in eternity. And so what we have to do is find our place in God's story. 
When we find our place in God's story, we are able to put into perspective where we are in the world and what it means to be here and how it is that God has called us to live in this moment. This is an important part of being emotionally healthy people. You see, we all are going to have fluctuations in life, but those fluctuations find their purpose in what God desires to do through them. Seeing your life in the context of God's story of redemption matters. Just like Jesus, he also had his own sort of short life story, right? He grew up in a broken world, had many of the same disadvantages that we often see that lead to emotional dysfunction. The world, however, did not form his view of himself. He allowed God to form that. He was born in poverty, in a third world condition, under questionable circumstances, to an oppressed people group. He experienced the harshness of his environment, saw the suffering of many. He was rejected, ridiculed, betrayed, abandoned. However, Jesus saw himself in the context of God's story. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That became the definition of his life. He came to do the father's will. He knew that his father always hears him because he's the son in whom he loves. He lived to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This gave purpose to all of the chosen actions of Jesus. It pushed him to engage a lost world and proclaim the kingdom of God that had arrived. It caused him to structure his relationships and make investments in the ones that were healthy and withdraw from those that were not. It called this sense of identity, it called him to embrace the suffering of life even when death was a part of that suffering because he entrusted himself to use his short story in the greater story of what God is writing in the redemption of the world. And when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we see ourselves through the lens of the story of God. And having this perspective changes our relationship to ourselves, to others, and to the very world itself. Our ability to find meaning, value, and purpose are directly related to where you think you are in relationship to God's redemptive work in the world. Just like he did in the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is then using circumstances in our lives to reveal the inner workings of the heart so that we can be shaped into the image of Jesus. Our stories are being enfolded into the story of God. And this enables us to encounter brokenness without feeling broken forever. It helps us to accept our emotional fluctuations and to be honest about them because we know a bigger truth. God gets the final say. It gives meaning to our vital relationships in our lives and the openness with which we engage in them. It causes us to be able to rest, to withdraw, to recharge. It motivates hard work as a result of the honor and love that we have been given by God. 
It presses us to love as he loves. And it makes us live in constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. When we find ourselves in the story of God, everything in life has meaning and purpose. Now, having said that, I want to offer a few disclaimers as we begin to chew on this a little bit more. A couple of disclaimers, some things that you need to know. This is a pursuit, it's not an arrival. Being emotionally healthy is a pursuit, it's not an arrival. You don't arrive at emotional health, it's a pursuit. It's an area of life that will continue to need monitoring. This aspect of our discipleship is an area where we are assessing it in an ongoing way, asking ourselves, based on my present life circumstance and the way that I'm coping with it, how healthy am I emotionally? Okay? I want to make a comment also about impairment. Sometimes our emotional well-being is not connected to how we're managing our emotions. Sometimes it's actually something going on in our physical bodies. And because God made us whole beings that are interconnected, we are body and soul together, woven, right? We can't separate the two. Sometimes what happens in our body affects our emotional state and our emotional well-being. And to ignore the fact that we have a brain tumor or to ignore the effects of dementia or thyroid function or insomnia and its effect on our emotional well-being is to ignore the way that God has made us. So we have to take into account impairment. Rather, when we talk about this area of emotional health, we're talking about what it's like to follow Jesus in an emotionally healthy way in the presence of a properly functioning physical body. I also want to make a quick comment about personality and temperament. You can be an emotionally unhealthy introvert or extrovert. So just because you don't have a bunch of friends and a lot of people and you're not always out having a good time doesn't mean you're emotionally unhealthy. You can be an introvert and be emotionally healthy. Matter of fact, I would say most of the time introverts tend to be more emotionally healthy than extroverts. So keep that. The goal here is not about changing who you are. Rather, it is being the healthiest version of who you are, the most honest version of who you are before the Lord. Let's talk about circumstance. There's many circumstantial pressures in life. And in pursuing emotional health, the goal is not so much to change your circumstances as much as it is to understand whether you are functioning in healthy or unhealthy ways in the midst of those circumstances or regardless of the circumstance. Now, there are times that you should change your circumstances, like when you're depressed because of substance abuse or when you are living with unrepentant sin. Other times, though, things are happening that we have no control of. And in pursuing emotional health, we're talking about how you handle the things that are in your sphere of control not trying to change life circumstance so that you can finally feel better about it, right? The last thing, last disclaimer is regarding emotional intelligence. Uh, Jacob Cook, in our, our meeting this last week, he pointed this out. He was talking about the dynamics of his small group. And uh, he, he was pointing out the fact that just because you are a, a girl does not mean you are automatically more emotionally healthy, 
or because you are a man does not mean that you're automatically more emotionally healthy or unhealthy. You see, sometimes we don't have vocabulary. Men typically lack vo- emotional vocabulary. They don't, and that's what emotional intelligence is. It's the way, the way that you describe what is happening in your inner world. And a lot of times men don't have the vocabulary. They, just, they don't talk in feelings. Women very much talk in feelings a lot of the time. And that's a part of that social culture. But not so much with men. But you can have very emotionally intelligent men that don't have language to describe their inner world. But they function well in relationships. They're honest about who they are. They withdraw when they need to. They engage when they need to. Uh, they're, they're solid people. And same, is said, same can be said true for women. Okay, so this whole discipleship series we've been trying to think about, okay, where are we in this process? Well, when we took our survey, our discipleship survey, out of the people that responded, the average response for our entire congregation was 3.66 out of a 1 to 5 scale uh, in the category of pursuing emotional health. This means that we responded positively to the following assessment statements. There are no topics or memories in my life that are too painful for me to talk about. I am able to be fully present to the relationships in my life. I'm hardly ever marked by disengagement or distraction. There are deep relationships in my life where I'm able to be fully known and still feel safe. I demonstrate self-control and an ability to regulate my emotions in healthy ways. There are no unaddressed issues of addiction or comfort-seeking behaviors in my life like food, sex, overworking, media consumption, etc. And I never avoid God's gifts or lessons that come through pain sorrow and grief we respected, responded positively favorably to each of those things and that is a great asset to our church this is a strength in our community this tells us that as a community this is an area of our discipleship to jesus that we can leverage our strengths to help those around us who are struggling and we can help them understand what it means to pursue emotional health Now, there may be some here today who recognize that they are not where they want to be. And we can minister to one another and participate in God's redemptive work by nurturing openness and accountability and open sharing with one another, praying for one another, encouraging, pointing each other to God's story and helping each other find our place in it. We do that work in togetherness. So where are you personally, individually today? We have our our, our one to five scale. Let's let's see what a one is. A one is you are in crisis, completely unaware of how your internal world is affecting your life. Very anxious, emotionally absent, exhausted. You have no resilience. You you, You can't get back up when you get knocked down. Poor sleep, dominant comfort-seeking behaviors, you're always trying to endlessly scroll, or you're always running to the refrigerator, you're always running to some substance to kind of feel better, right? You're in crisis. If you're a two, you're struggling. Aware sometimes of how your inner world is affecting your outer world, fluctuating anxiety, fluctuating depression, low resilience, poor sleep, poor appetite, fluctuating comfort-seeking behaviors, you go in and out of good seasons and bad seasons. Or, if you're a three, you're surviving. You're you're seeing that the inner world affects the outer world, but you have few tools to change it. 
You're often worried, nervous, irritable, sad, distracted, withdrawn, socially isolated. You have seasons of joy with seasons of struggle. You function from intermittent security and intermittent moments of insecurity. So you're surviving. Or if you're a fort, you're thriving. You're aware of your internal world and equipped with the ability to discern what you need in order to stay healthy. You have deep connections to others. You know when you need to withdraw. You feel comfortable talking about your feelings and the past and have a strongly rooted sense of being loved by God. You function from a place of security. Or if you're just like Jesus, you're a number five. That is, you're perfectly pursuing. You're perfectly balanced. You never get out of whack. You know the perfect time to withdraw and be with the Father and you do it. There's no issues from your past that are affecting your behaviors, attitudes, and actions. You do all things well. Now, if that's you, you should definitely start a YouTube channel. I promise I will subscribe. <laughs> you can call it emotionally healthy, you know, fill in your name. Where are you this morning? How are you doing? And no matter where you find yourself, there's no condemnation. This is just describing, like, this is the state of who I am. What do I do to nurture emotional health? Well, first of all, saturate yourself in the gospel. This is finding yourself in the story of God. Because of your union with Christ, we are justified, no longer condemned, sanctified, no longer defiled, adopted, no longer an orphan, washed, no longer dirty, redeemed, no longer enslaved, purchased, no longer in debt, liberated, no longer imprisoned. We've got the new birth, no longer non-existent. We are in a place of illumination, no longer blind. We are resurrected, no longer dead. That is all that comes to us in the gospel. These are insights from Dane Ortland's book, Deeper. Pastor Paul sent that to me this morning. I thought it was so profound, so good for us to grab a hold of. Dane Ortland goes on to say this, submerge yourself in this truth, your union with Christ. Let it wash over you. Submerge yourself in this truth. Number two, learn to pay attention to comfort-seeking behaviors. Pay attention to the ways that you numb yourself when you feel anxious, stressed, hurt, or otherwise. And when you find yourself numbing life with substance abuse, like food, sex, or shopping, distraction activities like overworking, media consumption, or leisure activities. These are evidences that you're trying to level out your unhealthy state. And you need to see those. And when they raise their ugly heads, it's time to seek the Lord. Both your behaviors and what is happening in your body are indicators of when something needs to be addressed in your heart. And so you have to learn how to pay attention to those things. Learn to pay attention to your emotions. Emotions are like a blinking light on the dashboard of your car. Now imagine this, you're driving in your car and you see the blinking light, you know, like you're out of oil. Does it fix the problem if you, if you take a screwdriver and you bash out the blinking light on your dashboard? No, you got to open the hood, right? You got to see under the surface, the blinking light is not the problem, it's what's under the hood. And your emotional state is an indicator that there's something going on under the hood of your life. Notice the blinking light on the dashboard and then run to God. Try prayerfully journaling. 
Do like the psalmist did. Write down what's happening in your heart. Write it down to God. Tell him about it. Come to him in conversational prayer and expose the deep feelings of your heart to God. Seek him over those things. Bring it to him. Ask him to show the underlying sin or idolatry or misplaced hopes. Get personal with God in silence and in solitude. Number four, keep working to reconcile the past. Acknowledge the truth of your story and then ask God to show you how he is fitting it into his larger story. You see, we're all the products of sins that we have committed and sins against us. But begin looking at the ways that God desires to take the evil that was done against you or the evil that you've done and use it to showcase his redemption. Fifth, Become a disciple who studies to learn. Take advantage of the resources around you. We've got, we've got right now media. Every person in this church can get, log on. There are great resources there. The, the heritage at home thing. Or heck, if you've if you you got an area that you'd like to grow, email myself or Paul or Kathy or, or whoever on staff, and we're glad to share resources of things that we found helpful. And, our, and the email is really easy. It's our first name at heritagefellowship.net. So Jeremy at heritagefellowship.net, Paul at Kathy at heritagefellowship.net. Reach out to us. We'd love to help. Number six, seek the counsel of a professional. I don't know why this is still taboo, but it's taboo among many people, especially in Christian circles. We tend to be somewhat conspiracy theory about therapists. They are helpful. Some of the greatest gifts in my life, some of the greatest graces God has given me has been through the words of a therapist. Number seven, recognize the war for your attention. This world is trying to distract you from your own heart and from being present with the people that you love and you are gonna have to fight to stay present. You're gonna have to put your phone down. You have to turn off Netflix. You're gonna have to turn off the radio in your car to be able to be present to the Lord and present to yourself and see what's going on under the hood of your life. How do we do this together? We preach the gospel and the grace of God to one another regularly. We pray for one another, and we're not talking Christianese, you know, uh, gas station, Christian book type prayers, right? Where you use all the Christian keywords. I'm talking about crying out to God on behalf of one another. I'm talking about getting on your face before the Lord with one another, saying, God, please, we need you to show up. Please heal these hurts minister to our hearts and thirdly nurture deep relationships the most common trait shared by those that struggle with maintaining emotional health is isolation the common factor in determining who will heal from trauma who will stay out of prison whose marriage will heal who will be able to fight off depression and avoid suicide is relationships it's connection and we need to hold space for one another to be honest and human to be people who feel the same things that Jesus felt. And often God meets us not just in a retreat or in a quiet time, but in the face of a listening and empathetic friend. And we have to be that kind of community with one another. Remember, it is impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally unhealthy. You are, what, who you are on the inside is what you bring to the table in life. Amen. Would you join me in praying? Father.
thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity that we have to think about these things. Thank you for giving us the pattern of your son that we might grow in our understanding of who you are and that we might also understand how to navigate life as it is. Lord, as I think about the gospel and the way that that anchors us to truth that is greater than ourselves, that gives us identity and helps us to find our story in the context of your story. God, I pray that the gospel would be deeply worked into every aspect of our lives and every fiber of our beings. That just like Jesus, when we find our place in your redemptive story, that we would begin to live out of it in such a way that it produces healthy relationships, present people who care about one another deeply and who operate from a place of honesty and transparency and vulnerability. Change us and shape us that you might be glorified not just by our words, but how we live in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.